are you submitting in your life to what is supreme? Or should I say who? To who is supreme or to what is secondary? Say, what do you mean by that? Anything that's not Jesus is secondary. In terms of who you submit to in your life, if it's not Jesus, it's not as important. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. Last week we began Paul's first prayer in the book. There are multiple prayers of Paul in this book, and we studied specifically verses 15 down to verse 18, and so this morning we'll study verses 19 down through verse 23 and finish the chapter. And so to make sure we know where we are in the passage, just to recap, remember starting in verse 16, Paul introduces the idea that he's praying for them, and this is what he prays, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And he has some specific requests, and those specific requests are oriented around things that he wants them to know, things that he wants them to be assured of. Verse 17, that the God of glory, that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. What is the hope to which he has called you? What is the glorious, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This prayer has a time orientation, a chronology orientation to it, which you will see completed this morning. Verse 18, the hope of our calling, has the idea of a past orientation. The hope which he has, which we have been called to from eternity past, which we understand from chapter 1, because he has in chapter 1, verses 3 down to verse 14, this massive, long, glorious sentence. He's introduced the idea of predestination, of election, of being called to God, which happened before the foundations of the world. It has a future aspect that we have 
in the second part of verse 18, a glorious inheritance that awaits for us that he's already introduced in verses 3 to 14, namely verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In this morning's text, he prays that we would understand something that has a present aspect to it. It is current in our lives now. It is necessary in our lives now. It is needed in our lives now. And you say, what is that thing? Verse 19. And what is? And we should also know, what is the measurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? What's the most powerful thing you've ever seen? And that question even is complex because you might define power a number of different ways. Power can have multiple connotations. You might think of physical strength. Maybe you think of the strongest, the world's strongest man tournaments and these massive men picking up massive amounts of weight. Or like they do in Scotland, you know, they, they wear their kilts and they chuck trees from end to end. Maybe you think of a different kind of power. If you ask me about power, what comes to my mind is horsepower. Because I like to drive fast. If you're a child, and I remember as a child thinking that daddy was strong. Daddy could lift heavy things. Daddy could break strong things. Maybe you're a child, maybe like last week at the fair, you took your children to the, one of the fairs and you took them over to the Clydesdales. You saw these massive animals and you can see their muscles rippling when they just, you know, like move their head. You understand that our concept of power is proportionate to our understanding of life. When you're smaller, you have a limited view. Younger, you have a limited view of what true power is. And as you grow and as you learn things about life, we begin to develop different connotations of power or who might be powerful or what might be powerful. And Paul in this passage is praying that these people would, would grow in their spiritual maturity so that they would know certain things. And last week we talked about the reality that he wants them to know their hope. This week, we're going to talk about the reality that Paul is praying that we would grow to the point that we would know God's power. But there's a very specific aspect to God's power in the passage. It's not just his general theological nature of God's power, his, his power to create. His power to do what He wills, when He wills. The, the, the power of God in this passage 
the most profound aspect of God's power centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's read the text again. I'm going to give you our main idea, and then we're going to begin to study it together. Verse 19. The and there, and the first word of verse 19, connects it back to what he wants us to know in verse 18. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You say, why did you make us read it again? Because I told you that God's power centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I wanted you to see that clearly. Our main idea this morning is very simple. I think it's what Paul wants us to know. I think it's what Paul wants for us in verses 19 down to verse 23. We should pray for eyes to see God's power in the person and work of his son. We should pray for eyes to see God's power in the person and work his son. I told you that the power is displayed in Christ. Let's look verses 19 to 21 at divine power displayed in Christ. Divine power displayed in Christ. You can see that there are multiple words for the power here. I mean, Paul introduces the idea and then he just kind of stacks adjectives describing God's power. Let's read it again. And what is the immeasurable, there's a lot of it, I'll be more specific in just a moment, greatness of his power that he worked with his great might when he raised him from the dead. And so you can see, it's obvious Paul wants us to note we're talking about God's divine ability his excessive ability. This word immeasurable literally has the idea that to, to attain a degree that exceeds a point of scale or extent. In other words, we're talking about something that literally cannot be scaled. It literally cannot be described. It literally cannot be defined. There are no human forms of measurement or description of the nature of this power. It would be like someone going to the beach and deciding that they're going to count every piece of sand. It's like the vastness of space that when you get up there, you realize it never ends. And you can invent a bigger telescope, you can invent a, a bigger radar, you can invent whatever you need to, but it just keeps going. You can't Define the scale. The immeasurable power. This is one of the more common words in the New Testament that refers to 
power. It's the word dunamis. Uh, some people will, I think, oversimplify it and say it's dynamite power. It's a, well, we did get that word from this word, but it's bigger than that. It's not, it's not that God's up there just like with explosive power at his demand. It's a power that's uncontainable. Paul will use this same, this same word in chapter 3, verse 20. If you want to, if you want to turn a page uh, in the second of, of Paul's prayers in this book. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the great, according to the power, the dunamis that is at work within us. This word work, though it may seem simple, actually has the idea of Ability or capability. It's another word that describes God's ability to do something. It's not just a general, run-of-the-mill word for accomplishing something. It has the idea of activity or making something effective. And this word working is actually slightly different. It is the verb form of the work that we see here in verse 19. It's literally the word from which we get the English word energy. If you flip over to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace by which he has given me by the working of his power. He is giving me the energized ability to do this. He uses the same word in chapter 4, verse 16 from whom the whole body joined and held together with by every joint which is equipped when each part is working, prop, working properly, is energized properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul says, I want you to know this kind of power that is immeasurable, that God can do things that you cannot possibly begin to imagine that he has a divine capability that is completely outside of man's understanding, and that these, his capability and that his divine power are beyond scale. But you notice that these, this power, this description of power, has a specific application in the passage. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That word might has the idea of, of spiritual strength. It also in the, in the New Testament often has the idea of physical strength. In other words, God's just strong. It's, another, it's a general word for God being strong. That he worked in Christ. So his ability to work, that he worked in Christ. And namely, he worked his ability, he applied his power in two ways. He affected his power in Christ in two ways. There's two ways in the text, and I would even argue within the concept of biblical Christian theology, these are the two primary workings of God's power in relation to the person of Jesus Christ. The first one is obvious. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So, divine power displayed in Jesus is first of all evidenced in the resurrection. 
I once attended a, a Christian concert. And I'm pretty picky with the Christian concerts that I go to. And in retrospect, I should have been pickier with this one. But they had a guest speaker. And I'm not going to mention his name because you will, you will know him. Okay? And I don't, I don't think he's been like a detriment to the faith. I just think he was wrong in this particular instance. And he was sort of talking about the, the, the mysteries of God and, and how powerful the mysteries of God are and how deep the mysteries of God are. And he asked the question, sometimes I wonder, how did God raise Jesus from the dead? Like it was this deep, like unfathomable, like, and you know, everyone's caught up in the moment of this concert, so they're all like, oh, how did he do it? By the working of his great might. Because he is un immeasurable in power because he's uncontainable in strength because what God go back to chapter 1 verses 4 to 7 because what God wants to do he can do he knows what he wants to do and he knows how to do it and he has the ability to do it and then you connect this power theology with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. That if the Spirit of God which raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Lives in you. Why would you fall back into bondage? Why would you not live according to the Spirit? Now this obviously isn't an Easter text, but it could be. And if you think back to our study of, I think it was two years ago, or maybe it was last year, and I know that's a lot to ask. But last Easter when we talked about 1 Corinthians 15, remember what I called the resurrection? The resurrection is the linchpin of all Christian theology. You do away with this act of God around the person and work of Jesus Christ, you have nothing on which to place your security. If Jesus is still dead, so are you. If Jesus decays in the grave, you decay in your flesh. But since he was raised by the power of God according to his great might, we will also be raised with him. This is why, this is why a gospel explained without the resurrection is not a gospel explained. You say, what are you talking about? In your conversations, maybe you're trying to give the gospel to somebody, or maybe accidental preaching or teaching. Jesus died for your sins and he wants to cleanse them. Jesus died for your sins and he wants to cleanse them. Do you want him to cleanse your sins? Amen, of course. But what about like the most important part? That this is the gospel. That he died according to the scriptures. 
that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. How? By the working of his great might toward us who believe. Brother and sister, this, this morning, tomorrow morning, the next morning, the next day, maybe you forget in the morning, I sometimes often do, unfortunately, at some point during the day, you should praise God that Jesus is alive. And you should center your life and your security around the fact that we serve a risen Savior. But there's a second aspect of God's power in relation to Jesus Christ here. And it's actually a doctrine that the church doesn't give enough attention to. When we talk about the doctrine of Jesus, we, of course we talk about his death, of course we talk about his incarnation, of course we talk about the, the, the crucifixion, and of course we talk about the resurrection, and then we'll talk about his teachings. But one of, the, one of the doctrines of Jesus that the church has essentially forgotten to talk about is the theological necessity of his ascension. So note what Paul says. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so first of all, Paul prays that we'd have eyes to see and know the immeasurable greatness of God's power that he worked in Christ in raising him from the dead and that we'd have eyes to see the immeasurable greatness of his power in the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ. You say, well, why is this so important? There's a certain theological unfolding of why it is important. That, that Christ left the world intentionally within the sovereign plan of God. You could ask a very obvious question. I don't think it'd be a bad question. Why didn't Jesus just stay? I mean, it seems like things would be better if Jesus just stayed. You could take that up with God. But there's actually a very important reason that Jesus leaves, and Jesus himself says it. And we've just studied John, and I hope you know what it is. That I will depart that the Comforter may come, and I will be with you, but he will be in you. So within God's plan for humanity, there's a necessity that Jesus ascends. But there's also other important reasons for Jesus ascending. But note the scope to which God took Jesus and then delegated to him authority, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Remember when, I, when we first introduced Ephesians together? When we first introduced Ephesians together, it's still on your little sheet. I don't know if you have your Ephesians cheat sheet in your Bible. But remember I told you that one of the key aspects of the book of Ephesians is that it talks about the gospel in terms of cosmic dimensions. In other words, it doesn't just talk about the gospel in terms of what happens here and in the earth, but it actually what talks about the gospel significantly in what takes place in the spirit realms and, and in the realms that we know very little of. That there are powerful cosmic measure, uh, uh, dimensions at work here. And that is what Paul gets 
2 here in verse 21. I'll explain these words, rule and authority and dominion and power, in just a few moments. But before that, I do want to talk about the ascension just a, just a moment longer. Because I told you the church doesn't really give it the attention that I think it deserves. There's a, there's a few aspects to the, in the, the ascension that I want to mention this morning. First of all, Peter is actually going to take this very idea of, of, of Christ's ascension and he's going, to, he's going to essentially repeat the same, the same ideas. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Who has, this is Christ, gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. What's subjected to him? The angels and authorities and powers. So upon Christ's ascension, God, again, we'll talk about the delegation of power in just a moment, but God places certain authority under him. So another aspect that's necessary for the, the, that makes the ascension necessary is God's order throughout the entire world. That God's intention was that Jesus would rule. But there are other practical everyday necessities for Christ's being ascended. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God. Amen? Listen to the next phrase. Who is indeed interceding for us? Do you know why you need an ascended Jesus? Because you need an eternal intercessor before the Father. That when God looks upon his child, he beholds the righteousness of his son. He bears the requests of his children. He maintains perfect peace between the, the once sinner and the redeemed child and the Holy Father. This is what the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able, I love this verse, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he lives always to make intercession for them. You say, why is that so significant? Because remember, in the, in the book of Hebrews, the writer is just pointing out all the ways that Jesus is better than the Old Testament system. And the primary way that Jesus is better than the Old Testament system is all those priests can fail you because first of all, they're not pure. And second of all, they die. And what good does a dead priest do you? You just always need another one. So the system is not perfect. But Jesus, because of the working of God's great might and raising him from the dead, lives ever to intercede for you. And on a very practical level, the ascension gives us a standard for strength and for sanctification. You say, what are you talking about? Colossians 3 verse 1. If you have then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. The ascension of Christ provides for you a standard of living that is, that is heavenly in its height. And a strength to live out that standard 
that you and I do not have in and of ourselves. Who should you be living like? Jesus, your ascended Lord. How can you live like that? Through Jesus, your ascended Lord. This power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. To what extent? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Which leads us to our second point. What specifically has Christ been raised over? And so secondly, let's look at divine authority delegated to Christ. Divine authority delegated to Christ. There's some... There's some pretty glorious, we're not going to spend a great deal of time just because I, I don't think it's even really the primary th- thrust of this text, but there's some pretty complex but also glorious Trinitarian theology here that God the head of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the, the head of the, of the Trinity, the Godhead, gives certain things for Jesus to do. This was always God's plan to what? Verse 22, put all things under his feet. It was always God's plan for God the Son to rule. And upon the ascension, that divine authority, Christ's kingship, was officially, theologically enacted. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. But this authority, this, this divine authority has already been introduced in verse, uh, verse 21 when he talks about what Christ has been ascended over. Namely, verse 21, rule, authority, power, and dominion above every name that is named. I mentioned that this specifically refers to the cosmic or spiritual realms. This word rule has the idea of the Greek word rule actually is the idea that we get the English word from monarch. It's the word arche. It has the idea of angelic or transcendent powers. The word sometimes in the first century was even had the idea of some sort of political organization. So it has a monarchal authoritative aspect to it. It's the same word that's used in chapter 3 verse, verse 10. So that in the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now that's a powerful verse, but I don't want to get caught in the glory of that because we're coming to it, all right? And the same word is used in chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. These are not physical rulers. The word authority, has the, it's the word from which we get the English word exercise, which most of us don't really like. But it's the idea of authority that is exercised. Transcendent rulers or those who function as powers of the spirit world. And the word dominion. In the New Testament, the word dominion is specifically a word that refers to the spirit realm of those who are angelic beings. It has the idea of a specific class of angels. They bear ruling power. Jesus is supreme not only to what is physical, but to what is spiritual. 
Jesus is supreme not only to what we can see, but what we cannot. And listen, sidestep application. If Jesus is supremely authoritative over the rulers of the air, listen, he is supremely authoritative over the rulers of the world. You don't need to fret who's sitting in the seats or behind the desk in the White House. If Jesus is supremely authoritative over the rulers of the air, he is supremely authoritative over the rulers of the world. That also means you don't have to worry about it. We have a supreme Lord. He is supreme over all. He put all things under his feet. This is, this is exactly what Paul refers to in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Listen, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I have a question. Are you submitting in your life to what is supreme? Or should I say who? To who is supreme or to what is secondary? You say, what do you mean by that? Anything that's not Jesus is secondary. In terms of who you submit to in your life, if it's not Jesus, it's not as important. And I've been a pastor not long, but long enough to know this. If Jesus isn't your first priority, he's definitely not your second That's just not the way we work. You can't cling to Jesus and cling to the world and its temptations or money or your flesh or what draws you or even good things. You can't cling to them with one arm and Jesus with the other. You'll let go of something. And that which you're holding on to proves what you're submitting to. He's the head of all things, but he's the head of the church. This is a beautiful passage. I, I, this is one of those passages that the English language doesn't really do the passage, tech, uh, uh, the, the passage, the text, justice. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. This word give has both the idea of appointment and gifting. So he appointed him as the head of the church, and he blessed the church by appointing him as the head over the church. He makes Jesus the authority, and he makes the church the benefactor. He gave him as head over all things 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul references us back to Psalm 8, verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. And that includes the church. In fact, namely, his headship is most gloriously seen in the church. You say, well, why, where do you get that? This idea that which is his body, verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul is actually saying is that the primary glory of Christ's supremacy is most seen in the church. You say, where do you get that? He makes him head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. A better rendering of this translation would go something like this. For the church is Christ's body and the full expression of Christ. Why is church important? Because you will not know Jesus the way God displays him in his supremacy and his glory and his goodness if you do not prioritize the church. There's none of this I'll do Jesus my own way. And that means church is important when church is important to me. If Jesus is important to you, church is important to you because church is important to Jesus. And church, his body, is the fullest expression of his glory and his supremacy. You will have a one-dimensional view of God's Son if you have a low view of God's church. Who himself fills all things. This is an aspect, a description of his divine authority, his divine supremacy, and of his divine sovereignty. I love what John Calvin says about this text. Here, that is in this life, he's referring to the temporal world. Here, we are impoverished, so poor that we lack everything that we need. He, on the other hand, has been appointed by the Father to possess all blessings and to dispense them according to his good pleasure. In this view, we shall be those who gain if we turn our minds to Christ so that in Him as in a mirror we may contemplate the wonderful treasures of divine grace and the infinite greatness of God's power, all of which we can hardly discern at present in our own lives. Where do you see the fullness of God's power in the work of God's Son 
And where do you see the fullness of, God's gra- of Christ's grace and authority in God's church? And this is why we should pray that we have eyes to see God's power in God's Son.